Welcome back to another episode of PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. I am Annie Ulifir and I'm the Publishing Director at Jonathan Ball. In today's episode, we will go behind the scenes to explore the often grisly yet fascinating world of forensic pathology. Risking life or death, Lessons for the Living from the Autopsy Table is the second book by South African forensic pathologist Ryan Blumenthal. His first book, that was simply called Autopsy, was a bestseller and sold over 7,000 copies to date. In Risking Life or Death, Ryan takes us into the mortuary and tells us more about some of the unusual cases he's worked on, including torture, electrocution and lightning deaths. In many instances, it was only thanks to his vast experience and great powers of deduction and investigation that he managed to establish the cause of death. Ryan will be talking to the writer and true crime addict Nicole Engelbrecht, who is also known as the creator and host of the popular True Crime South Africa and I Live Through This podcasts. May their conversation enlighten and entertain and hopefully not give you too many nightmares. Hello, PageCast listeners. I'd like to thank Jonathan Ball Publishers for inviting me onto the podcast today to discuss their new release book, uh, Risking Life for Death, by Professor Ryan Blumenthal. I am Nicole Engelbrecht. I spend my days and quite a good part of my nights immersed in the world of true crime with my podcast, True Crime South Africa, as well as writing in the genre. And today I'm very grateful to be joined by Professor Ryan Blumenthal, the author of Jonathan Ball's new offering, Risking Life for Death, Lessons for the Living from the Autopsy Table. Ryan is a highly experienced forensic pathologist. He's also a best-selling author and appeared in an eight-part television series called Lightning Pathologist on DSTV. Thank you so much for joining me, Ryan. It's an honor to be here, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Sure. So to start off with, of course, I've read the book and I must say it really was one of the best books I've read in the genre in a long time, perhaps even since another book I read a few years ago called Autopsy, which is, of course, your first best-selling literary creation. Maybe we should start by painting the picture of the creation of Risking Life for Death by maybe talking a bit about the public reaction and your own personal experience around your first book. What was that experience like for you? Well, firstly, thank you for the hard praise for for my new book because, yeah, that is very hard praise coming from yourself. I mean, I know you eat, breathe, dream, sleep, this genre. So I'm very humbled by your review. So thank you. Thank you very much. That's a um, pleasure. Yeah, look, I don't know where to really begin. So autopsy was a mixture between an autobiography and a memoir. So there's a difference between an autobiography and a memoir. Like an autobiography documents a person's life, whereas a memoir focuses on specific moments. And I thought that autopsy was a mixture between autobiography and memoir. And I did it as such because I didn't want to get into trouble. Because, you know, forensics in South Africa comes through a long history from the days of Lothar and Nierthling and it's all classified, and you're not allowed to talk about any of these things, and it's everything's classified. And so I took great risk in writing autopsy, and I thought the safest way for me to do it was just to talk about my experience of it, because it's my life, and I can talk about my life, you know. 
So that's why I wrote autopsy. And in it, I mentioned cases very measured, very cautiously. The cases had all been sanitized. And I, I literally gave broad brushstrokes of what it's like to be a forensic pathologist in South Africa. My new book, Risking Life for Death, is a totally different beast. This is fine brushstrokes, and this is a deep dive into the Mariana Trench of forensics in South Africa. Um, yeah, the, and don't come up too quickly because you'll bend. Excuse the scuba, scuba diving metaphor. So it's a totally different beast to autopsy. And autopsy got published in August 2020, and I literally started writing a few months after this. So I've been busy with this for about three years or so. Sure. And with autopsy being your first book, how did you cope with that sudden sort of public exposure and everyone giving you all of this feedback about your writing? What did that feel like for you as a person? Well, actually, autopsy was my fifth book. The other four books failed horribly. People don't know about this, but I literally wrote four other books before autopsy, which failed dismally. I wrote The Rain Beetle, The Seed, MMA, The Butterfly, all African fiction. And these books are out there, but yeah, they're relegated to the bottom of some book pile in some secondhand bookstore somewhere. And if you find them, yeah, I think you'll enjoy them. But I was quite surprised by the response to Autopsy, which was a nonfiction book. I mean, the response was actually quite astounding. And I'm still getting feedback from Autopsy. Yeah, it resonated with a lot of people, I think, because I pitched it in the right sense. Like, I didn't pitch it too high, I didn't pitch it too low. So everyone can read it. The youngest person to have claimed to have read my book was seven years old. I received thousands of selfies from all over the place of people holding my book. I received countless emails from people wanting to meet me for coffee, countless messages of mothers wanting career advice for their children. I received a photo from a prisoner in CMAX prison holding my book in his handcuffs, in his orange uniform that I'd apparently put away, this guy Bennett. I received a photo from a seal colony on Marion Island amongst the seals of a researcher holding my book. People that I would never normally have access to were suddenly contacting me. My heroes were connecting with me. So it was quite humbling. I mean, I met you through my book, I think. I would never normally meet you in real life, I think. That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. That's fantastic. I mean, if I look at the publishing dates, and, and you mentioned in your in your first answer as well, you started, you must have started writing Risk in Life for Death very soon or almost immediately after autopsy. And what was that sort of motivation to jump straight into a new book so soon? Well, look, I'm very aware of life. And I know that there's this wave that happens after something gets published. And you've got to ride the wave for as long as you can. And then the wave dies down. So too, if you get your PhD or if you're externally motivated and the band is playing, the band will stop playing. And you've got to make your own luck in life. And And also, writing to me is much more important than singular events. It's literally has saved my life. It's, it's creative therapy. So mm. it's my way of getting through life. It's my art and science of living. So I'm a writer. And an unwriting writer is a hellish thing. Like, you don't want to know. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I'm fully with you on that one. And we're very grateful that you did start again so soon. Risking Life for Death is, I um, almost saw it as a, it was a bit of a two-parter book. And you focus on specific cases from your career, which, of course, brings forward interesting forensic knowledge. But then you also weave into that lessons that the dead have left you with about life. 
was there a single point in your career when the realization hit you that the sort of rest of the living world could actually learn from those on your autopsy table? Or was it more of a gradual accumulation of that understanding? All right. So as I said in my book, it's been like a thousand piece puzzle. And only until you like really put all the pieces together and stand back, do you get a picture of what this puzzle is. All the cases in my book have been through ethics committee and have been peer reviewed. So I chose them very specifically. Like there were cases, sadly, which I couldn't put in my book. So, and people will recognize themselves from, from the book, you know, families will recognize the, the cases. However, I had to choose specific cases to be in this book. And yeah, as, as I said, like um, only towards the end did I realize there's this golden thread running through everything. And that golden thread is low quality exchange principle, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But then I realized like if we're using this to catch murderers and I use it every single day of my life and it's so pervasive, can we use this on ourselves and can we use this to become happier, grow old better, and maybe even provide me with less work? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, and I think that really shines through in the book. Reading it almost feels like following your own sort of train of thought as you came to this conclusion. And I think that's really helpful for the readers as well. You mentioned, of course, the backbone of the book, which is low cards exchange principle. Can you maybe give the readers who haven't grabbed your book yet just a, a brief explanation of the principle? So this is a masterclass in low cards exchange principle. Everyone's favorite detective uses this from Hercule Poirot to Jessica Fletcher to the mentalist to Tintin. Um, to Inspector Gadget, whoever your favorite detective is, whether they name it or not, they are using low cards exchange principle, which is the law of interchange. Every contact leaves a trace. So if you go to a death scene, you leave something there or you take something with you, only human failure to identify what you've left behind or taken with you can diminish its value. It is very pervasive. It functions throughout all our lives from the atomic level to the cosmic level. It works from your accent to the bushveld to oceans to genocides to the little mites on your eyelashes, it, it really is pervasive. And I mean, as I said, I, I live, eat, breathe, sleep, dream, low cards exchange principle on a day-to-day -day basis. It is very powerful technique. And then at the end of the book, there's this epilogue, which I think is, is critical to this book where it just all comes together. Absolutely. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, in most books, epilogues, the book sort of stands with or without it. And it's almost a bit of an add on. But I really think that in this book, the epilogue is almost one of the most important parts. And, um, you know, it's, it, it strongly brings across the message that these are not just case studies. And this is not just a principle you're trying to explain here's what we can actually learn from all of these things. What did that, that part of the book mean to you as, as the author? Okay, look, like all uh, good authors, I stole a little bit from other authors here. So, like I literally used a technique from my favorite book, which is The Story of San Michel by Axel Munte, which was written in 1952, which is about a doctor in the time of cholera. And in this book, he used a principle whereby there's this chapter that's incongruent and he's basically setting you up for later in the book for a single sentence. So my book, Risking Life or Death, I literally am building one huge argument. Like you don't know where it's going. It is more technical than autopsy, I think. So there's work to be done in reading this book. Like you literally got to be invested in it. However, by the time you read, by the time you get to the end, the argument is so concrete within you that 
and and knowing this, you come to the striking conclusion that what I'm about to tell you is inescapable, and it's literally like just right hook, left hook, uppercut, punch. Eh? It's like that. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good way to explain it. Um, yeah, I think every element of the book has standalone value, but altogether they have it's it has a very different value and probably an unexpected value because I don't think readers coming into this will expect to leave with what they get. So I think you really did a really good job there. So obviously, I understand why the title of the book is "Risking Life for Death" and. You also give a few examples that were quite surprising of, of ways that yourself and other forensic pathologists have, you know, various dangers in your profession. But, I, I, you know, I was thinking when I was just finishing off the book that it's almost if you were to integrate what you're hoping readers will, what I assume you're hoping readers will take from this, it's almost not risking life for death because the death is already done. It's almost you're risking life for the hope of a better version of life, really. Although that's not a very catchy title. I like that. Look, the book is hopeful, I believe. Like the end message is literally you are the end result of all your contacts in life. And these contacts could be anything. The, The news you listen to, the TikTok video, the pollen grain, you know, who you, who you with, what you're eating, everything leaves traces on you. You are the end result of all your contacts in life. And all these contacts can also constrain you f- for who you could have become. And uh, I literally say you've, you've got to be mindful of your, of your contacts in life. So there's the past contacts, your present contacts, and your future contacts. The past contacts you can do nothing about. However, the hope in this book is that you could be more mindful about your present and future contacts. And in so doing, hopefully become a bit happier grow old a bit better, and I want to see less work. Absolutely, yeah. As you you mentioned earlier when you were discussing sort of the fact that you selected case studies that had been peer-reviewed, you mean you've done thousands of autopsies in your career, probably far more than most um, forensic pathologists across the world. Are there any cases that perhaps you wish you could have included that were either left on the cutting floor, so to speak, or you couldn't include because they hadn't been peer-reviewed? There's amazing cases happening in South Africa. You, I, I wish I could tell you like the stories. However, we live in such a dangerous world, you know, with cancel culture. And also, if, if I haven't been vetted by an ethics committee or peer-reviewed or through the lawyers of the book company, I would be in serious trouble. And that's also why it's called risking life for death. Like I'm literally risking my life to, to write this stuff. Because these cases are so sensitive. Anything can trigger anyone. Every single case is a story. Every single case has a wow factor. I mean, you you cannot believe, as I always just say, like, if I were a big drinker and you were to get me around a fire at night in the bushveld and get me to talk freely, like, I I don't think you'd be the same human after. (laughs) Well, I mean, if you look at how interesting the cases that you did include were, I think we can only imagine as readers the ones that weren't included. And and I guess, you know, really it's it's an ethical thing at the end of the day as well because it's, you know, these are really our stories of, and we need to remind ourselves of that as readers, these are stories of real human beings. 
And although we find them fascinating, this is someone's mother, brother, father, whatever it may be. You often say that you're one of the first people to start seeing new ways to die, whether it's accidental or murder. And you present one of those ways in the book, which is essentially death by dry ice, which I found quite interesting. Um, What are some of the new trends that you can speak about that you've seen recently that have started standing out for you? Well, just for your viewers, so like we can tell a lot by what's happening in the world as forensic pathologists from our autopsy table. So we can tell you if there's a new or emergent gang that's moved into a neighborhood. We can tell you if there's a new and emergent disease or drug. We can tell you the health of the nation. We can tell you a lot about the folkways and mores of the society in which we're operating. All this without stepping outdoors. So literally from my my opic view of the autopsy table, I can tell you, I, I feel a bit like a panel beater. You know, not being at the scene of the car crash, I can tell you what happened in the car crash. I can't tell you why. I can tell you how, how the death happened. Like if this car was T-boned or head-on-head collision, etc. And to be a forensic pathologist, you need a lot of knowledge about highway design. You need engineering knowledge. You need physiology, toxicology, etc. So from that autopsy table, we know what's like routine, run-of-the-mill kind of cases. And then, obviously, if something is just totally out of whack, you realize you're dealing with something unusual here. So in my book, I just simply use the example of an appendix. So I always look at the appendix. And the world record for the longest appendix, I think, is 26.4 centimeters. And I think I found one of like 24.5 centimeters. So, you know, it's that kind of um, mindset that – you know, gets me going, so to speak. So mm. we, we're always looking for something to publish. There's international journals, the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology, Forensic Science International. And let me tell you, to get published, it really has to be something that the world hasn't seen. So we're all on high alert. We're all watching and noticing. That's the key word in the book, noticing. Because the average human looks, the expert notices the littlest things. And then it gets published and then and then that's it. Absolutely. I think two of the, the cases that I found most interesting in the book involved non-human elements, actually. And one of those was the man with the, the wound that presented as an insect bite of unknown origin. And I was quite interested to read that you said that there was no definite recorded case of someone dying directly from a spider bite in South Africa. Do you think that that's because most people don't know they've been bitten? Or do you think just spiders aren't really keen on killing us? Well, for your viewers, so I get this case of this adult white male with a history of a spider bite on the back of his neck. So, look, we're fascinated by all types of fauna and flora deaths, and it's a particular interest of mine. So I went into this uh, autopsy with the preconceived notion that I was dealing with a fatal spider bite. And obviously, many questions are going through my head. What kind of spider could do this? There are fatal spiders in South Africa, although we've never really performed an autopsy on a spider death in South Africa. My colleague uh, from Stellenbosch, she performed one in the Congo of a spider bite through a glove. However, we've never really had one in South Africa. So I went into this autopsy a bit laissez-faire, I must say, from a personal protective equipment point of view. And I noticed there was two bites on the back of the neck, like a large bite, and then four centimeters to the right, there was a small bite. When I saw this, I realized immediately this is not a spider bite, this was an escar. 
which is a tick bite. So immediately I drew blood, photographed it, and it came back positive for a chocha called rickettsia, rickettsia conri variant pipery, which is a tick bite fever. Anyway, we published this. It got published in the American Journal of Forensic Medicine and Pathology. I then got on to say that seven to 10 days later, I start getting sick because I went into this autopsy laissez-faire and I had actually contracted it from the autopsy and my own GP put me on uh, tetracycline and I uh, am alive to tell the story. So there's cases of uh, forensic pathologist vets that have died from a drop of blood in the mouth, such as fatal glanders in the veterinary pathology world. And there's a host of other cases which are documented in my book. So I think that was the take-home message from that case and why it's called risking life or death. I think one of the things that surprised me the most and probably will also surprise readers of risking life or death is that you're sometimes called upon to use your expertise on living victims to make certain determinations. Can you tell us more about that part of your work? Okay, so I need to contextualize. In South Africa, we don't really have clinical forensic medicine as they have in other countries. So in other countries, they've got what's known as police surgeons or clinical forensic medicine experts. Here in South Africa, clinical forensic medicine is a bit of an orphan field, uh, which now resides under family medicine. And I believe it is a super speciality in and of itself and it requires a champion because there's a lot of forensics that happens in the living. So, for example, rape cases, injuries on duty, road traffic medicine, aging of how old someone is, etc. And because there's such a paucity of forensic experts in South Africa, oftentimes we as forensic pathologists are drawn in to give an expert opinion. And we even sometimes drawn into veterinary cases to give an expert opinion on animals such is the shortage of expertise in South Africa. Yeah, that's um, and that's the, yeah, I think that takes me into my next question, which I was quite heartened to read about how closely you and your colleagues work with experts in other forensic practices to help figure out some of the mysteries you see on your autopsy table. I guess to most people, forensic pathology might seem quite like quite a lonely profession. It seems like you you actually need to remain connected to quite a big network of people to do the job properly. Well, that is, I think, the take-home message of this podcast. Because if you think you're a lone wolf and can manage alone in this world, you are wrong, wrong, wrong. And that idea must die. The reason is the whole world is changing. Um, you know, nowadays, for example, in Australia, the single practice is becoming a rarity. So for example, if there's obstetricians or gynecologists, you'll have three women forming a group practice and then they'll say to the patient, look, I may deliver your baby or she may deliver your baby or she may deliver your baby. You know, and it's no longer about doctor-patient relationship, it's doctor-client relationship and it's about groupthink now, no longer about the individual lone wolf. And let me tell you, you'll be a fool if you're, you think you can solve something single-handedly. The key word nowadays is multidisciplinary interdisciplinary, teamwork, literally you need to bounce ideas off your colleagues. I mean, just last week I performed a very high-level autopsy with my colleague, the two of us together. There's no egos involved. We literally settled down together and he and I did this autopsy together. Mm. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think that's so important. And as you say, there are there is such a shortage of skills in South Africa. So I think it's great that you you and your colleagues are able to, I mean, I'm guessing that it's you, you're also connecting with people internationally and, um, you know, discussing getting advice from international experts on certain cases. Well, I mean, I can just speak for myself now. Like, so, for example, you know, I'm very interested in lightning deaths. 
And in the moment, I've hooked up with the dentists to look at lightning on the teeth because sometimes people have fillings and root canals, which are hollow organs. So I need a dentist to help me with the analysis of these cases. I'm also doing research with electrical engineers. We've got a like a, a smart dog, a, a mobile quadruped agile dog, very similar to these Boston Dynamic dogs that can go into high-risk death scenes. You know, So this can protect forensic pathologists if there's a hazardous or high-risk scene such as chemicals or fires, etc. Then we can send this smart dog into the scene with cameras and sensors. It's amazing. And you, you need expertise from other disciplines to help you. You can't do it alone. It's impossible. That's phenomenal. It's it's great to hear that um, you know that there's so much working together in that aspect because I think so often we silo ourselves off and that can become quite hazardous. Um, I think as, as we start to wrap up, I wanted to sort of bring us full circle back to the preface that you wrote for Risking Life for Death. And in it you write, I also wrote it because I've been feeling somewhat dissatisfied of late and un- and unable to tolerate the situation. As Risking life for death starts to see the light of day and you started getting feedback. Do you feel any of that sort of dissatisfaction assuaging or do you think it's too early to tell? Okay, so that is a very powerful question and I'm very pleased you asked it. And I've been thinking about this myself a lot. And the only answer that I can really give you is it's about self-belief. Um, you have to believe in what you're doing so strongly because, you know, there's a lot of people that want to chop you down in life. They they see this tree or this forest and they want to chop you down. And the only thing is to literally believe so strongly in yourself that you've got to forge ahead, um, come what may. And and that's, that's why there's great risk in writing this book. I hope some of these ideas resonate with your audience. Um, I, I think there were some very powerful ideas in this book that once again have been taken from giants from before me. Like a lot of the books that are cited were from the 1920s and 1930s, actually, if you look at the biography. And some of these ideas are, are timeless and I think needed, needed to be repeated for people. And I'm, I'm quite proud of this book. I must say I, I, I was looking through it again the other day and I thought, did I omit anything? Is there anything else I would have liked to have added? And given the time frame and the pressures, I think I'm quite uh, chuffed with what I've done. I, obviously, I, I don't know how people will um, uh, you know, appreciate it. These are real cases from real life. So the only thing that can really review is my writing or interpretation of it. Um, but this is what it is. Like These deaths happened. So the philosophy behind it is is my own, especially how I've connected it to some other books and thoughts. And I think by the end of the book, it will affect you. You, you, you won't be the same person after reading this book. You will see the world in a different way. But we'll see what, what people think of it. You know, it's up to them. Well, the I mean, the feedback that I'm seeing already is is fantastic. And I think you absolutely should be proud of it. You know, listening to you talk about how a lot of the the information you've included was from other sources that you that you'd come across in your life. I guess the, you know, the book itself is an example of exactly what you speak of. So an example of exactly of all the the traces that have been left behind in your life and and now you're passing that on in risking life for death. 
Sure, that is insightful. It's true because I too am the end result of all my contacts in life. Absolutely. Ryan, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing Risking Life for Death with you. I have no doubt that you have another bestseller on your hands here. Thank you. I hope so. Thank you. And PageCast listeners, to make that happen, I highly recommend that you get out there and purchase the book. Risking Life for Death is published locally by Jonathan Ball Publishers and is available at all good bookstores and online.